Please pronounce your name correctly for me. My name is Matt Collishaw. And we met briefly at your exhibition at the Rudolfinum in Prague about, I guess it's three years ago now, which does not feel like three years ago. And I, I had never heard of you before, but I was just like, oh my God, this work is amazing. Like I was absolutely in great admiration of the work. The one that really, uh, sort of struck in my head that I absolutely loved was the centrifuge piece, the the spinning one. Like mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. stunning works. Uh, I very rarely like say so many nice things about people, but I really enjoyed your work and I enjoyed the exhibition because it was the sort of an expanse of your work. It sort of showed your career growth and mm-hmm. changes and things like this. So that being said, the things that I generally start with is uh how did you sort of come to being creative? So like childhood, uh, education, your parents, like anything like this that sort of formed mm-hmm. you as an artist? I think like a lot of artists, I just wasn't very good at doing anything else. So you find a way of getting attention, of getting, of elevating your status in a way. And I used to draw obsessively. So I started drawing soldiers and battles fights and then started moved on to footballers and then moved on to drawing rock stars and i was not good at any of these things i wasn't good at fighting i wasn't good at football and i wasn't great on the guitar and i realized that the only common thread that was linking all these obsessions together was my obsessional drawing of them and so I thought, well, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the thing I should be going with because that's what I'm doing all the time and that's what I'm getting quite good at. And I remembered at school being able to draw slightly better than some of the other kids and being able to do like a drawing of like a bar fight in a kind of cowboy salon where one of the cowboys had discovered that another cowboy's cheating at cards. So the table had been upturned and he was pulling his gun out. And being able to create that kind of drama on a piece of paper with a pencil and then have all the other kids come around and look at it because you've created this bit of action there from nothing. And, you know, that was quite good. I I got a little bit of attention for doing that. And so I think subconsciously it cemented it in me that this is maybe something you should do because you can elevate your status in a way and it seems to be working. And generally, as I got older through the teenage years, it became more of an escape, you know, from the real world. It's just like, this is not making any sense to me. I don't like it. And I don't like school. I don't like all the subjects I'm doing. But I can go to the library and get a book out on Brancusi or Caravaggio and, you know, just become absorbed in this other world that they create. So slowly, it started to become something that I could see as being a vocation. No, where was this? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Nottingham, which is the East Midlands. So it's like the, the middle of England, about halfway up, the heart of England, Robin Hood country. And what did your parents do for a living? I'm always fascinated because like, my dad is a, a minister, a priest, whatever you call him, uh, but he's also yeah. a painter, and my mother's an interior decorator. Uh-huh. So it's sort of like I can see my direct lineage of how I came to be. So I'm always interested in how, like, uh-huh. what people's 
parents did and how that somehow influenced them. My father worked as a technician making false teeth. That's not an easy connection to make between what I do and what he do. But he was a very creative person in terms of his always making stuff, DIY at home or making little toy forts for us. So he was always handy with a garden shed and a saw and a hammer and some paint and making things at home. And my mother, we, there was four boys, so my mother had her hands full looking after us. But she educated herself at home on the Open University when we were teenagers and then did a degree and became a teacher just about as I was leaving home. But they were also quite religious and still are quite religious. They are Christadelphians. It's a moderate-sized sect in England. So we were brought up with the Bible, you know, go to go to their church a couple of times a week and then read the Bible every night and reflect on what we'd read. So that was very that was instilled in, in us from a very early age that there was a moral code which we should be responding to. Wow. Yeah, I had it very good when it came to my dad being a priest. He he sort of saw it more as his job and he sort of left it at work. He very rarely brought his religious beliefs to the oh. home, which I you know, I I know other preacher's kids, PKs, and I I appreciate that he didn't bring it home. Yeah. And do you think that was because he was professionalized, because that was an official position that he had, rather than just a passion? He, he could just compartmentalize it. Yes. My dad is probably very good with compartmentalizing in that way. Like he, like I, the closest we had to religion at home would be, like on Christmas Day, he would always be like, okay, it's not from Santa Claus. It's actually enjoying the birth of the Christ. You know, like he would little reminders like that. And we would have to say grace around every night at dinner. But like, that's about the extent mm -hmm. of it. Like we, he never, mm -hmm. we never spoke about biblical or theological things in the home unless one, either myself, my brother or my mother brought up the topic. He would never bring up the topic. I, I don't. I don't think grace before dinner is a bad thing, though. The that moment where you bless the meal in front of you, and there's a sacred quality to eating and breaking bread with each other. That's quite a nice thing, and something that we've lost a lot of now. And in a lot of the work that I make, I try and imbue it with some kind of sacred quality, which I think is probably down to things that I picked up growing up. Oh yeah, I'm a huge fan of sort of the. My sort of derogatory word, but like pomp and circumstance of religion. Like I really mm. love all of the formality and the the robes and the processes of like do this can't light this candle first because it's this it symbolizes this and then this other candle second. Like I remember being an acolyte and we had to. I think it's like we light the left candle on the altar first, and then when we're going to put put them out, we have to do it in the opposite direction, kind of thing, so that you're not. Mm -hmm. damaging the the holy spirit and all this kind of stuff like it's i love all that stuff the ritual yeah i mean yeah i i did when i was doing cocaine i i, I loved the ritual of like <laughs> cutting up a line of cocaine yeah. like same thing yeah the meditative process of doing something in a particular order over and over as i'm sure you experienced at the height of your cocaine my cocaine, my heroin, my when I did LSD. I mean, all the different rituals of drug use as well is, is sort of its own little ritualistic process as well. Like, 
you know, we used to do mushrooms and we would, we would go through this whole process of making it into tea and like sitting around and sort of doing it the same way in a ritualistic manner. So like, yeah, there are lots of different things like that. Totally a me thing, I guess. That's fine. But I mean, I make my tea in the morning, my general tea in the mornings the same way. Like there, it's part of, it's funny. I, I reflected on this because my wife questioned a lot of my sort of daily choices on things. I like a certain amount of rituals in a, in order to allow for a certain amount of spontaneity. But like if I if the mm -hmm. rituals aren't there, I, the spontaneity doesn't work. Like so, I need some structure in order mm -hmm. to allow for absurdity. Yeah, very important. I think without gravity, you have no grace. Those oppositions, very important to have them there. And it's something that I try to put into my work to, to have that, to have certain structures and then the perversion of those structures or the corruption. I love your vocabulary. Okay. So let's get into that. So like one of my first questions, like, so I saw your exhibition and I saw the breadth of the different works and the various different techniques that you use also. So I guess the first question would be sort of how do you even come up with your ideas? My influences could come from anywhere. You know, it could be a conversation I overheard on the bus, although probably pretty unlikely. More likely to be coming from books or documentaries or podcasts, things that I'm kind of absorbed into, things that I've been drawn towards. And then I'll be reading and think, oh, well, that little thing could be something. And I'll make a note of it, maybe a mental note, maybe a physical note on my phone or a book. And then there'll be like another idea that comes up and like, it's okay, the combination of that idea I had a few weeks ago with this one that I've just had now, if those two things came together, that could result in an interesting sculpture or, or, or an image. And at the same time, I'm looking at many different techniques and processes, ways of doing things. So then I've got to bring the ideas into a physical form with some way of presenting them that resonates with that idea. So it's like lots of different ideas kind of swimming around and trying to bring them all together into one thing. All right, let's try and make it specific. So the, the piece that I was talking about, I'm looking on your website here, was All Things Fall. Yeah. The piece I saw at the Rudolphinum that spins around and does this beautiful stop motion thing. Like, I love it. So yeah. Okay, so how did that idea come about? Okay, so that was quite specific. I had this exhibition at Gallery Borghese, and I'd lobbied them to make these works because I'd seen an exhibition at Gallery Borghese, and it was okay, but I thought maybe we could do something that's more integrated with the, the architecture, which is incredible, high camp, and the paintings and everything in there, the marble and the floors and the walls and the ceilings. And so I made this proposal and I got an okay to my surprise to go ahead and do it. And as I went, I went for a site visit and Anna Kaliva, the director, said, okay, so we've got those works there. What about this space here? And she showed me this huge room downstairs, which was, you know, very exciting to think about making a work in, but also a little intimidating. It was a very large room. On the ceiling of the 
the room were frescoes of writhing bodies. There's lots, lots of sexy, violent scenes going on up there. Further down the walls, embedded in the marble, were sculptures like a Bernini man falling from a horse, emerging from the wall. There were other violent-looking Roman statues, men with clubs appearing out of the marble walls. Then on the floor, there was a large mosaic with gladiatorial combat. There was just flesh and sensuality and violence everywhere. And I thought, so, okay, so it's going to be something that fits in with this. And walking around the gallery behind a door, I found a little old painting of the Masque of the Innocents by Scarcella, who's, I think, quite a minor painter. And I thought, okay, well, this is, could be something that I could make a work out of. And I'd made some three-dimensional zeotropes before, and so I started trying to work out how I could create this massacre of the innocents, which was just like a nest of writhing bodies, into this animated sculpture, because that could hold a room that was that size and with so much other visual information swimming around in it. But I, it wasn't an easy process. I thought, well, how, how am I going to get all these bodies? What, what, what's going to hold them all together? What's my structure? And I started with like a tree in the centre with the branches coming out. Because you need something in there, some kind of architecture to create a landscape which you can then populate with your, your figures. And the tree wasn't really working because everything has to be repeated within the technique of these zoetropes. So then I had these kind of vaulted arches that came out. And they could come from the centre, but then I couldn't work out how to finish them on the outside. And then wandering around Rome, I came across the Bramante's Tempietto. It's like a small circular temple, and it was perfect. Because what you need to make those optical illusions work is architecture that repeats itself, and ideally is circular. So that one facet is the same as the next facet, is the same as the following facet. So that as it spins round, you're actually looking at different facets of the same whole, but it appears to be the same thing. So that was the perfect little conceit to use this Tempietto structure, which I then started to populate with all my little characters doing various things. Then there was lots of technical issues and how to get them animated and doing little films of friends fighting each other, etc., so probably not so interesting, all that journey that I then went on as to actually make it work. Oh, no, that is the most interesting part. That is the thing I want to know. Ah. It's a fascinating piece because, like, I mean, you, you sort of take the idea of a simple flip book and then turn it into a three-dimensional mm. experience that, like, it's funny because, like, I watched the, I looked at the things on the, on your website. And they're good representations, but like when I was there, there were little sounds and the, the feeling of the wind when the thing was spinning around at full speed. Mm. Like it's just that it it had an essence to it that does not transcend through the digital experience. Yeah, I mean, ironically, because I work a lot with digital technology, but I make my work to be experienced in the flesh. You know, when you go in a gallery, you have an experience that you can't get online. And part of it's like a time thing that, you know, you spend time with these works and you choose the amount of time you spend with them. Although generally, like these zoetropes, like you're talking about, they only last one second. You've seen the whole animation in that one second. But you want to linger more because it's such an odd thing to be experiencing. And then the spatial thing of being able to walk around and navigate the space and to feel 
the, the wind as this thing spins around and hear the little clunks as the mechanism that controls it galvanizes. But I had to, first I created a collage where I basically cut out little figures from various Massacre of the Innocent paintings, from the Rubens paintings and various other, and just sort of plotting them into a map, then sort of building a 3D drawing in a computer, then building a 3D model in real space, actual size out of cardboard, and making little clay models. I'm just trying to you know, make everything fit in so that the action would fill the space and occupy it in such a way as to make it engaging. Then I started filming all the bits of action with real people in my studio. So we have little one second animations of a guy clubbing a baby, that kind of stuff. I'm going through hundreds of little clips, deciding which one we were gonna use. Then we get the little characters, which we design, make this one bald, make this one a bit overweight and then rig them. So they've got like a skeleton and then start animating that rigging and then getting all these little one second loops and trying to put them together inside this one scene. So there's a lot of digital engineering going on before anything started to happen in the real world. And then all of those files get sent off. Like you have a one second clip that's divided into 18 different files. Each of those files is then 3D printed. In this case, it was in Belgium, we printed most of them. They're then sanded down and painted and sanded and painted and sanded and oiled. And at the same time, we're printing the architecture of the Tempietto or one eighteenth of it. It's sliced up like a pizza. So we only print one eighteenth of a pizza slice because it's very expensive 3D printing on such a scale. Then we make a mold and cast that bit 18 times. Then starting assembling it over like a steel and aluminium armature. At the same time, creating the motors and the gears to control the whole thing. And then start putting in all the figures, which are all registered to go in little plug holes, cementing those in, bolting them in. And there were quite a few little mistakes, you know, things that appeared to work in the digital world, which when we actually built them in the physical world, kind of didn't work because like a guy would like hit a baby with a club and then whip his arm back for his second take and the arm will pass straight through the woman standing behind him. That can happen in the digital world because it's not real space and there should be software that we were using that would indicate that we have like collisions anyway we didn't use it so we had a lot of people a lot of our characters were just colliding with other characters in the real world so then you get to down to the level of using a heat gun which is just blasting these little resin characters to heat them up and then just just bending their arm a little bit so that it can actually function in the in the uh, animated sculpture i've made then there's all the lighting that you have to plumb in and position the lighting to get the best optimum effect. That was a nightmare because when you've got it built, it's very hard to then start rewiring inside this very dense structure we've got. Well, I mean, I was going to ask a lot about like you work in a variety of different mediums throughout your your career, and the I'm, I I always wonder like some of this stuff is super high tech, some of it's sort of let's say like more handcrafted kind of stuff. 
do you do everything yourself? Do you outsource a lot? Maybe like 50%? Like what, what, how much of it is still made by you and how much of it do you sort of outsource to other people? Yeah, a lot of it gets outsourced. I'm really not that good at any of these disciplines. Uh, I, I don't pretend to, and I can't be an electrical engineer and a mechanical engineer and a operating mire and blender and Unreal Engine and all these tools that I use. So it makes a lot more sense for me to be managing the project. So I have the idea working out how it's going to be done. Then I have various people that I work with consistently over the years. I'll know, okay, if this is going to be an animatronics job, I'll call my guy Adam, who's a friend, and he's worked on several projects with me before. And then we start a project where we're sharing files for months. He's designing them and tweaking them, sending them to me. I'm looking at them. Then we'll meet up and talk about it, go through various materials, options of how we're going to put it together. And the same thing with the zoetropes. I work with a couple of different people, again, who have become friends over the years. And then other guys that work on animation projects for me. But I think you have to say Alfred Hitchcock, apparently, he worked his way up from the very bottom. And it was very important for him to understand every part of that filmmaking process, every every different way a lens could function, everything about the camera that you need to know. So that when you're you're setting a scene up, you know what's possible and you know what can be done. And if, you, if you're ignorant of those things, you know, you're really not operating with a full palette. So I try to learn as much as possible on, this, on these subjects, on these techniques and processes that I'm working with, but I can't possibly cover everything. But a lot of model making and sketching goes on here with me at the studio. And then I'm refining it all the time. Obviously, the functionality is one thing, but then the aesthetics, the appearance of how it looks is incredibly important to me. So I'll refine and refine and refine until it looks like that thing that I wanted it to be. Okay. So now I want to know, like, because I'm hearing like refining, basically working with other people, months of projects to hopefully have something achieved that works because I mean, I'm sure there are lots of projects that you started that failed as well. Mm -hmm. How, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how do you fund all of this? Like, do you do grants? Do you have, are you self-funded? Does the gallery support you? Like, how is this all working? Because as a working artist myself, like one of the biggest struggles, of course, is, you know, how to fund, because we can all come up with these great ideas, mm -hmm. but not many of us can actually afford to manifest them in reality. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's partially the reason why I can't master all these disciplines myself, because my job now has just become admin, you know, just trying to raise the funds and make these projects happen. So that becomes like a huge part of the job of being an artist for me, which is not why I got into it and not what I particularly enjoy at all. One of the benefits of doing these large, complex projects is that the initial budget always accelerates and grows exponentially. So when you get an initial quote for a job, it's like, eh, that'll be about £2,000. By 14 months later, £100,000 in, you would have never have done it if you thought it was going to be that much money. But you have little add-ons and it changes and it grows. And, oh, sorry, made a bit of a mistake there. It's got to be a bit more. So if I'd have known the true cost to my pocket and my, my mental health, I probably would have not got into many of these projects. 
but each project's got a different way of doing it. Sometimes I'll get like a, a church in the north of England who say, we want to do a project where you respond to the environment, the history of the church and the architecture, et cetera. We've got this amount of money. And often if that happens, I'll try to use those funds to explore a new medium that I've not worked in before. So they're paying for my little experiment, which I can then go on to use. So I'm, it's like an education for me and a, and a learning process, and I'm also getting like a sculpture or something out of it. Not a lot of grants, really. Like for the Gallery Borghese one, that was various different things. I sold some limited edition prints. I sold a couple of works to collectors to raise funds for it. I did a big job for Jimmy Choo, the, the shoe company, which was like a like a campaign and various other things. And I still work outside of the art world. More or less every year I've got a job that helps fund the, the projects. So mainly the money is coming from me or, or funds that I've raised. I did a Kickstarter campaign for thresholds my virtual reality campaign but again that was a lot of work those kickstarter to do it properly and i also got an arts council grant to help with that too so there was a little grant assistance so yeah it varies and it's it's part of the struggle to get in the thing made raising the funds well i mean that's sort of my thing so like okay so you sold some work you did kickstarters and then you get grants and stuff so like you're even at your level of the career which to me totally admirable you're still having to sort of like find and fit and mix and match to make things funded like so it's it's basically like it's kind of nice to hear because like it's never easy whether you're a starting artist or whether you're a well-established artist but i think it's also an indulgence on my part when i've got something that i really want to make you know something that's in your head that you want to be there in the physical world to share with other people it's such a like passion to get it done it's like i want this to happen and it will happen whatever it takes i will get it made and it's and i guess it's just like it fulfills my need to spend you know i'm not on bond street expensive suits or cars or any of those things it's my indulgence is where I put a large amount of cash. And most of the big work, they're not easy things to sell. Like, like these three-dimensional search shapes, you need a darkened room. You need quite a large space. It's an electrical, mechanical, so there's maintenance issues. They're not easy things to sell. So I know when I'm making them that this is not like a money-making venture. And I'm more likely to make a much more modest work, like a photograph that's editioned or or a small painting, something that's more acquirable to actually get the funds in. And then these big pieces are my indulgence, which I think, you know, they they served me well because obviously you saw that work and you're quite taken with it. So I'm glad I do these things, but they are they are hell sometimes. Just to be British. clear, I was quite taken by a lot of pieces. I also loved the super valiance, I believe is what the title of it is, with the yeah. scanner yeah. behind. Like mm. it, it's really amazing. Like mm. what I find about your work is that you seem to find <laughs> it's gonna sound bad. Okay, so here I'm gonna project onto you. You uh. you you've found all of the really cool techniques that I've seen over the decades, and I'm like, oh my god, I want to make something with that. And you figured out how to make something cool with it before I could. I'm very sorry about that, but it did take a long time too for me. The ones that you're talking about, the with the is the lithophane technique. 
And I find it hard to find too much on it, you know, let alone get my hands on real lithophanes. Apparently they had them in China thousands of years ago. You'd have a little cup. You drink your tea and at the bottom of the cup, the surface of the material will be thicker or thinner. And when you held it up to the light, light passes through and you see this image based on the thickness of the material. There were also, they had a bit of a renaissance in the 19th century with lamps. You'd have these little carved lampshades which light would pass through and give the illusion of an image being there i mean it's a fantastic like a cameo except yeah, with light passing uh, yeah, through it yeah 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 but there's no real image there it's an optical illusion really it's just light passing through giving the impression that there's something there that isn't there which is a wonderful thing. okay but this is something that i struggle with a lot and i mean i've i'm probably more like you like i jump like basically i i find an idea and then i use whatever medium is necessary to express that idea that's you know how i mm. explain what i do and you do this very much the same like you you jump from sculpture to two-dimensional mm. to experiential to you know mists and holograms and all kinds of interesting you know different ways and of course now vr and other things like this have you had any sort of pushback from that because when i was in school we were taught you know find a style find a thing be consistent at that but you mm -hmm. seem to have found a way to be successful sort of like in a gerhardt richter kind of way of just doing whatever strikes your fancy well i'm glad you think i'm successful that's a nice a, a nice other illusion that i seem to have peddled effectively yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a difficult road to travel because you will. it serves you much better if you have a house style, if you have your branding sorted out, so that when somebody walks in a room, they don't have to read the label on the wall because they know it's done by this particular artist. And a lot of people acquire works on that basis. They want a status indicator. They want to have a dinner party. People come in their room. Oh, he's got one of them. Mm -hmm, I see. That's like a very immediate way of capturing your audience. But when you're all over the place, like I am, I don't really fulfill that function because it's like, well, what's this? You know, it, it doesn't doesn't do that job. So I think it's much more difficult because people can't really get a, their head around what it is that you do and you seem to be kind of a bit of a mess. I don't think I am. I think there's a central core that runs through my works and that I have a sensibility. But part of that sensibility is making each work, tailoring each work to the, its content, to the subject that it's trying to deal with. But yeah, it doesn't make it easy. Plus you've got to learn like a whole new arena of production when you go into this new area. But that keeps it interesting as well. And thank God, you know, for the internet that, you know, it's right there. A lot, there's so much information you can get on any disparate technique or process. Much more easier now than it was 20, 30 years ago when you'd have to go and do this all by talking to people or going to the library. Indeed. I remember going to the library to learn all kinds of techniques when I was a kid. I even went, I had the luxury, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was able to go to the Library uh, of Congress to do my research. So, like, huge library. Library of libraries, yes. More wrong books to choose, though, right? I mean, before you get to the wrong Way book. too many books to choose from, yes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but still fun to be able to do that as a high school and college student. Uh, Great place to do absolutely. research. That's a privilege. 
Yeah. Absolutely. So, okay. Now you make these many times rather large scale things. I'm always interested because I work on paper, my stuff's small, and yet I still feel like I'm taking up far too much storage in my home. So like, what do you do when you do large scale sculptures? They're not all sold or on exhibition at all times. So there, mm -hmm. there's, there's a point where you have to store this stuff and transport it. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, that's a, a thorny issue that is another thing to deal with. And currently, my, my gallery went under last year. And the arrangement generally is that I split storage 50-50 with the gallery, which lessens the blow because art storage isn't cheap because it's climate controlled and managed in such a way to protect the artworks, everything is insured quite expensive but if the galleries share that burden it becomes feasible since then i've been relying on certain friends of mine who've got large storage facilities who've been very generous in giving me space to store my work at an extremely modest cost i also have a couple of storage containers up in the north of england where i've got a lot of work stored and I've been very fortunate that I've had two large exhibitions that have been now running for about a year and a half each because COVID keeps shutting them down every time they open up. And I'm like, yes, we want an extension for another four months, meaning I don't have to pay storage on those works for another four months. So that has been quite it's serendipitous that I've managed to keep these exhibitions going on for so long and avoid paying storage for the artworks while they're on show, but not on show because the galleries are unfortunately closed. But it's a constant problem and it's something that weighs on my mind as I'm making something. Like, Where's this going to go when I finish with it? Well, not only that, but I mean, you have to concern yourself with like you're making products that have crates that travel with these things that you probably have to custom build all of those to match the works as well. Yeah. And I think it's an important thing to factor in. I mean, it's good that you raise it because, you know, you, you just get this euphoric idea that you're going to make this work, but the, the, the whole of the work involves all of those tail end things that happen well, when the work comes back unsold. And there's the whole crating issue and the storage issue and the insurance issue and making sure that that's all part of the job. But it's not kind of what you really want to be part of the job. So you generally try and shut it out. But it'll come back and bite you in the ass because, you know, when you've got a, a, a few works of this kind of scale, it suddenly becomes a big problem. Well, there's also the issue of making sure that the work is of scale, that it can fit through standard size doors as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, I could show you some pictures and videos of trying to get this artwork, all things full, into the Rudolphinum. It was the most epic undertaking I've ever been involved in. We had to get it up so many stairs, you know. It's, it's not an easy, there's not just like a goods lift there. And that thing weighs half. They don't have an elevator there? No, nothing. And that weighs, I mean, they probably have maybe, I think they've got one, but it's too small to get the work in. The work's quite big and it weighs half a ton. So we had to... We had to dissect it outside the museum, like cut it, cut the, the temple dome off, then build a wooden structure like a cradle for it. And then we had to hire 10 gorillas, which are extremely fit. They're like a kind of a rugby team, massive guy. They've got like legs the size of my waist. 
and we got 10 of those lifting them all up the stairs and that almost destroyed them getting them up there the weight of that thing and the fragility of it because if you drop it bam that's that's the work destroyed that was epic yeah i would imagine all right so at this point in your career are you doing like i uh, I always wonder, so like, okay, how do you get an exhibition? Okay, so here, I'll do, again, I'll do a specific thing, so I don't want to talk vaguely. The nerve rack. Is that what it's called? The nerve rack? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That seems to be, from what I see on your website, that seems to be in an existing museum that you then basically added something that was becoming a relationship between the existing works and your new works. Yes? Yeah. Correct. How does that come about? So like, do you, did they come to you and say, Hey, we want you to do a piece in our museum? Or did you go, Oh my gosh, this is an amazing you know, sculpture of a, I think an Eagle. Mm-hmm. I want to do something. And you mm-hmm. wrote a proposal to them asking if you can do something like, so like, how do your exhibitions come about? Are they, are people coming to you and asking you to do things or are you proposing things? It depends. Like the Gallery Borghese one was me approaching them because I loved the paintings and the whole setup of Borghese. But in this instance, they approached me, and I'd done a project before with Queen's House in Greenwich where I created a an animatronic reconstruction of Elizabeth I. And I think that, amongst others, made them think, okay, maybe I'm a good person for this project. They wanted to commission an artwork to go inside this space, partly to bring people in, like, come and have a look what's going on. This thing's happening. We're not just a fusty old institution. So I then went up there on a site visit, and you wander around trying to find something, some little key, something that will give you a way in. And there was this incredible... Augustus Pugin lectern with this very regal eagle on top of it. And that was that was of interest, but I didn't really know how to approach it. And then they have like a library upstairs, which is like, I, it's like Hogwarts library from Harry Potter. And I think they actually filmed Harry Potter in this library. And the librarian was talking me through various books they had. And we came across this one little volume, which was a book on the suffering of the Protestants at the hands of Catholics, saying that you're you're torturing and killing us all, you've got to stop all this now, it's too much. And that book had fallen into the hands of Richard Topcliffe, who was a Catholic, and he was Elizabeth I's chief torturer. And I'd read about him before in another book as being a particularly evil sadist. So I kind of had, I sparked my interest. And he had annotated this little book, which was written by a Protestant, saying, this is a load of nonsense. We're not torturing your people. You're torturing our people. You're making martyrs of our good Catholic men and women. Uh, So you had these two sides, the two opposing sides of the different faiths in this one modest little volume. And this was during a period where in France and Spain, very Catholic, in England is Protestant, and they were at war with each other. And to one side, somebody was a martyr, to the other side, they were a heretic. So there's this kind of mirroring going on between these two different faiths, both at war. And 
I also read quite a lot about evolutionary biology and, um, and about nature. And it struck me that these religions, when they get so big, they just become like killing machines because the only thing or the primary thing is survival. And anything that threatens their survival, they have to eliminate. And this is what's happening in this period, like 15th, 16th century. They have to take each other out. Very serious business. So not unlike the way that a vulture or an eagle operates, it just has this survival mechanism. It's got to kill, eat, survive. So then the eagle from the Augustus Pugin lectern came into play. And I thought, mm, what if I make another eagle to go opposite it, which is similar in proportion, but is stripped down to its basic skeleton armature so it just looks like this automaton it's a machine designed to kill and that would be in like a face-off with this pugin eagle so you have the opposing sides the catholic and the protestant both like at each other i didn't say which was the catholic and which is the protestant but I assume whatever you were, you'd assume that the Pugin Eagle, which is a majestic ambassador of your religion, this golden messenger of your faith, the good guy was your faith, and this malevolent-looking evil animatronic skeleton was the other side. So it's like the intransigence of these different religions, and it's something that's still here today. You know, there is a lot of intransigence, of oppositions and polarities, and people not talking to each other, just going at it, and it be, being this kind of full-scale warfare, which is not helpful. Oh, yeah. But I try to stay away from politics as much as possible. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I have no interest in politics. All right. <laughs> I had enough of it as a child. That's what he does to you. Yeah, a little worn out on it. Yeah. I have a guest question. Violet wanted to know what's your opinion on the NFTs and cause and people and all that movement that's going on right now. Interesting question. Thank you. It's obviously a very burgeoning media. There's a lot of activity there. It's mainly not art world activity. A lot of it seems to be like fantasy art, that kind of stuff that was very popular in the 1970s airbrush. People used to do it with airbrushes, and now there's like a few cyborgs or fantasy landscapes. Computer animations where solid things go liquid and vice versa. It's very interesting. I think the NFT will remain because it seems to be like an effective way of trading things and people obviously seem to have an appetite for it. So I'm very interested in it. I think, I'm not sure how many of the artworks that are currently being bought and sold are going to last for their longevity is. But I've started making a few, so I'm currently working on them. But I'm trying to make them artworks that address the medium as well. So like a lot of the things that I make, this will be about what it is to acquire digital currency, to be using your phone or your tablet, to be navigating the world and looking at those things that you can acquire and the kind of dangers on depending on these shiny, slick, slippery bits of hardware that gives us access to these untold amount of riches, these portals into this new realm so I'm trying to make something that kind of addresses that as well. It's not just a decorative animation. It will be something, hopefully a little bit humorous, but also 
about the, the corrosive nature of digital technology. Okay, school me a little bit because you seem to be more knowledgeable, I'm guessing, than I am about NFTs. So from your perspective and your understanding, sort of give me a primer on what they are and what their function is. They are artworks that are collectible. They're linked to a unique token, which means that you can unquestionably own this work. You have certification of this digital artwork. You can then trade them, and that's there's a big market in buying things and then flipping them. So it's like blockchain meets the auction house. But there's also a perspective to it where you can addition a work, which is not something that happens in an auction house. So you can create 300 of these artworks, sell them at a modest price. Those works can be bought and then resold to other collectors using cryptocurrency, Ethereum in the instance of most crypto art. And the value of those artworks ideally starts to go up. The artist receives a small percentage on each resale, which is nice. But then if you then you so you then, you then start to create a market within your marketplace, whether it's Nifty Gateway or Super Rare or whichever marketplace you're you're on. So that then you get quite good analytics. Sure. You seem to be somebody that's worth investing in because previously your record is that your share price, your price of your crypto art has gone up. So you then become more popular. But there are a lot of talk of, you know, it being a bit of a scam and that the people who are paying this big money for these projects are all involved in Ethereum or they're all involved to a degree that it benefits them for hyping up the prices to get more interest, to get more people investing so that these big prices are possibly to do with a marketing exercise, hyping their platforms. Does that make sense to you? It does. I mean, but it sounds a bit more like a commodification of it. I mean, you're literally just creating a, a digital file that is bought and sold. And then it, and then to a certain mm -hmm. extent, I sort of feel like it's like trading cards, like like kids. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the model, and that, that's I think they would welcome that comparison because there's a lot of them are, that are designed like that as well. So you would have ten different artworks that are all kind of similar, and they're all part of a set. So somebody's got nine, but they haven't got the tenth, and they want the tenth, just like it was with kids with trading cards, and they're prepared to pay over the odds for that tenth card to complete the set, and that's where it gets interesting because then people are starting to do crazy things to get hold of the ones that they haven't got like football stickers interesting i'd have to i'll have to look more into that because i you know to it, it, it there are so many different ways to sort of i don't know we'll call it make money or make a living in the arts these days i mean you talked about you do some commercial work you sell some prints you do these commissions and then you potentially are doing these nfts like i mean it, to me, I, it's exhausting. <laughs> Not only do you have to like be talented and skillful and masterful at whatever it is you're currently doing, but you also have to be actively keeping engaged with the next big thing in order to be able to participate because otherwise you'll get left behind. 
Yeah, I don't feel the imperative is not so much of being left behind, but like because I work with digital, I work with images, and I'm kind of interested in like the way that images can be used to manipulate us. I mean, religious iconography, political propaganda, advertising. All of these things are using imagery or our perception of the world and how we're hardwired and manipulating and distorting reality to sell us something, an idea or some kind of politics or religion or washing powder. We are highly manipulable. We're vulnerable to our psychologies being hijacked by clever media. And and that's what I try to deal with in a lot of the works that I'm I'm making. So I think when a new technology like VR comes along and starts becoming accessible and part of the currency of people's landscape, that I should be working in it really because I'm dealing with that interface with the real world and the simulation of the world. So that's why I kind of got into VR and that's why the NFT thing is something worth paying attention to because it's a new medium that's out there on the landscape. So it makes sense that I would try to make something about that new medium. Okay, help me out. One like one last question about NFTs because I'm interested. The like so let's say your your series Last Meal on Death Row. So these were photographs you made a long mm. time ago. I'm sure you have them digital at this point if you if they shot them on film. Mm. Can you then just take an existing artwork, basically that's available as a physical print, and just say, okay, here it's available digitally mm-hmm. also? Like, is that part of what NFTs do? Yeah, they can, and people have done that. They've put an artwork that's previously out there and just sold it. So it was a limited this in this one instance that I'm talking about. There was it was a limited edition, which I think is sold out, which they've now released again as an NFT, which is also a limited edition same artwork so that can and is being done i think you have to be a little bit careful that if people have acquired something that they thought was limited that then there's an extension to this limitation i think you have to be a little bit careful that you're not seen to be watering down your brand yeah 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 can you give me some names of three artists that you're currently looking at is it okay if I go back a few years? Sure. I'm not sure how many. I mean, don't go back to like the Renaissance. Like, I mean, I won't go back that far. But there are there are kind of key artists. Generally, I try to draw on art history a lot, as 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 you know. And the exhibition at the Rudolfina was curated around the idea of bringing paintings back to life, referencing art historical works. But three artists from the 20th century that I think have been instrumental for me man ray being one just a guy who used the camera as a tool not as creating a realistic representation of the world but something entirely new a different thing and that photograph the photographic print that that he made is almost like a fetish object it's this new thing that is invented it's not trying to be a representation he occupies this new space and the idea that the images that he makes don't necessarily need to relate to the real world, but they establish some kind of iconic imagery that is image. It exists in the realm of image. That, I think, was very important for me. Another artist going forward a few years, Bruce Nauman. The idea of creating these spaces that are a little confrontational, a little bit terrifying to navigate through. He's 
you have to brace yourself a little bit with those works. He's both compelling and abrasive. So to deal with those two things at the same time, so, you know, eat shit, motherfucker, or whatever else it is, you know, it's very, very aggressive, but then he's using neon and he's using carousels, things that are kind of quite compelling to look at uh, and to talk about how our body navigates those artworks and for that to become part of the artworks so that there's this kind of visceral response even to the very basic materials that he uses finally carl andre who's a guy who you know makes these sculptures that he appears to imbue with some kind of sacred quality you know it's a bit of cut wood which he puts on the floor or some metal tiles which he puts on the floor and it's just the material itself it's minimal you can see the essence of that material there but there is this kind of almost religious quality which he'd probably disagree with i don't think he's particularly religious but i mean they do obviously reference some kind of buddhist zen buddhist type meditative calm simple geometry so, so there's something in there that interests me as well, which I try to use in my work to, to try and give something some kind of almost sacred power. So the presence of those things is important. When you go into the gallery and, you've, and you stand in front of those things, it has a presence to it, a weight. All right. And the last question I always ask everybody is advice for the next generation. So for you, would obviously be artists. Mm. So like how can the next generation... Um, learn from some of your mistakes and maybe do better? I think the most important thing is finding what it is that you're interested in. And I think it's fine to, like, like I've just listed three artists that I kind of, you know, just looked a lot at what they'd done and read about them and thought about them. So I think it's great. Immerse yourself in art of the past and, and of the contemporary and, find out what you're drawn to and what it is that you're interested in. And, that, and then if the books and the films, the documentaries, everything that you gravitate towards, be aware and in tune with the fact that subconsciously you're doing your research there. So you can kind of moderate it a little bit. So, oh, I seem to be reading more on this kind of subject. Well, that is what you're interested in. Go with that. And then you're in another little area go with that because you're drawn to it because something is telling you your intuition is drawing you towards something that for whatever reason you have an interest in and every person has something to give everybody is a unique voice so i don't think you even need to be that great an artist but if your voice is unique then you are something and you're something to be dealt with you know and to be considered and and shown and feted because you have a singular voice which is drawn on something deep inside your subconscious which is perhaps influenced by your genetic makeup and you know, your what you've inherited from generations of your ancestors that uniqueness which will draw you towards certain interests try and make that into something that's coherent well, I'm not sure if that's a very coherent thing to say, but that's, that's the kind of thing. Everyone's got a unique voice. Just find what it is you're interested in and then try and formalize it in a way. Well, okay, but there's something I want to ask about within that, which is that when I saw your work, and even when I see it on your website, one thing that I noticed that I feel like is 
I know it's just, this is going to sound really stupid, but this is just me projecting. One thing that I really admired about everything that I saw of yours was the impeccable quality, the craftsmanship and the skill that was put into everything from the choice of the frames to the painting the walls behind it in order to create a contrast or a, or a, or a cons- uh, uh, contrast or a mm-hmm. compliment mm-hmm. in between the, the, the works. I mean, the, the impeccable nature of that, like I find craftsmanship to be a very important part of the expressive process because it's really easy for me when I look at a piece of art to go, oh, that thing's distracting me or that's mm-hmm. ugly or that's out of place or that could have been done better or you know, whatever. But like when I went through your works, when I saw the exhibition, I didn't see anything. I was just like, it's beautiful. It, it works. The craftsmanship's there. Nothing took away from the ability to just engage in the work. Well, thank you. That's a big compliment. I'm, you're very kind. And I think that's uh, that's like a a mountain of mistakes and wrong turns to get to that. And that's the only way to get there. And it's a cliche, but you know, when you do something wrong, when you fuck it up, when you make a mistake, it's good because then you're learning something. When you make something effortlessly and it's a success, you don't really learn. It's really dangerous. And you start to think, hey, I'm kind of quite good. And that's that's when you fall over because you're not. It's all about learning making the mistakes that doesn't work so let's try something a little bit different does that work yeah maybe a bit better but maybe try something else so constant experimentation not being afraid to do something wrong i think is very important and then learning how to get it right from there okay quick questions i'm trying to wrap this up but you keep bringing up topics that are interesting what was the longest piece that you ever did so like from idea till exhibition how long did that last i think the all things four was up there because that was just over a year but i've now been working on one that's been going over it'll be two years by the time it opens so i've doubled my actual time well but covid fell in the middle of that so covid yeah things been production being delayed like all the 3d printing companies in england immediately started making little parts for the national health system over here so we couldn't use them anymore I mean, it's great that they they were doing that lots of other little issues that came up so yeah it is a kind of a a delay which doesn't really count i guess but, but it's generally generally about that kind of three to four months in planning and design then we start to move into production it's reasonably fast for the scales that you work in actually Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I enjoyed that. And let's hope to meet up one day. Yeah, we still have to get that drink that we didn't get in Prague. Absolutely. I look forward to that. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. I have one small favor to ask. Uh, We're trying to uh, draw more attention, more listeners. The more listeners we get, the better guests we can get, the better information I can pass on to all of you. So, Please go and rate our podcast. Give us stars, write a little review. It doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to take a long time, but it makes a huge difference. And so I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. 
We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Sensrene in Norge in Norway. Links to the EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. <laughs>